Welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the greater world of wargaming. I've said before uh, on this podcast and on many others that we're in a bit of a gaming renaissance. There are so many awesome games out there that we can spend our hobby dollars and our, our hobby time on playing that sometimes it's hard to know what to do. Um, you just look at a wall of games and go, God, there are so many things here. I wonder what's good or, oh, God, I'm passionate about this, that, and the other thing. Uh, so this is the podcast that sort of talks to people about who are playing some of those games, really get into what's enjoyable, uh, what people like, and what people are passionate about. This is a Bolt Action Central uh, centric episode. Uh, I know many of them have been recently. Uh, I know we've had a few people requesting, Brad, are you going to do more Star Wars Legion? Yes. Yes, I am. I am very excited about Star Wars Legion. I'm going to be playing some games, and then I will be podcasting about that again soon. Um, there's also quite a few other games I desperately want to talk about. Uh, but in the meantime, um, sort of one of the things that I'm very passionate about is bolt action. I, I love the game. I love the rules. Uh, and I have been playing a fair bit and playing in a lot of events recently and planning events. So it's only natural that we do another episode on Bolt Action. Now, you can hear some rustling around in the background. And that little dog barking in the background can only mean one thing. Now, that isn't my dog. My dog makes a slightly different noise. Uh, this would be the dog of a guest. Um, our first guest this evening is, you would know his voice uh, from a Malifaux podcast. Um, I have known this man for many a year. Uh, he has, I've played him in... Warhammer Fantasy Battle tournaments back in the day. Um, I've, I don't know if we've ever played Malifaux together, uh, but he is one of, uh, one, of my one of the cast of one of my favorite Malifaux podcasts, um, of course, Unfocast. Uh, and you would have heard one of his uh, podcasting compatriots, the one and only Mouse, on episode seven of this very podcast, where we talked about what makes for a good TO. Now, I do not have Mouse on today, I have his co-host, one of my old gaming buddies, and just a rad human being all around, Pip. Welcome to Cast Dice. Thanks, Brad. What an introduction that is. That was actually fairly short by my standards. Um, I also forgot to say that in Operation Wolf, uh, the event that I recently ran, Pip played in his very, very first bolt-action event. In fact, was that like your second or third game of bolt action coming in uh coming into the event uh it was my th uh, third game of That's bolt action and you came second overall correct so clearly you know what you're doing <laughs> i'm not sure my dice were very good that day Right on. Well, we're going to talk more about that in just a minute because there's another man hanging out in the wind and uh Again, I'm talking about Malifaux Podcast, but here's another gentleman whose Malifaux Podcast I very much enjoy. Um, we have, and oh God, if you've been looking at uh, the Bolt Action Australia page recently, you will have seen this man's hobby progress because uh, hobby menace to society slash God, Nick Beatty, welcome to Cast Ice. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, man. Um, I don't know if my head will be able to fit through a door after that one. Oh, Jesus. Dude, okay. Pip, we're going to start talking to you in just a minute about, you know, everything that you've been doing with Bolt Action. But I got to ask Nick, dude, yeah. last levy, you have been taking, like, fall of Berlin Germans to the next level. Um, I have so many questions for you and where to start. How about 
Let's talk to you about your tiger. So, or I yeah. guess, what, what is your passion behind this project? Because I feel like I'm already talking too much. Go ahead. The, the passion behind the project is definitely the, uh, the king tiger. I've just got a, a massive uh, love of the late war German cats, especially the king tiger. So it all sort of stemmed from how do I fit that into a list? Yeah. Well, you have, you went out, you got a JTFM uh, yep. tiger. Now, is it tiger two? Is it, is it the Porsche turret or? No, nah, no, nah, Henschel. Henschel, right on. Now, yep. you looked at this beautifully cast model because one of the things that JTFM is known for is really crisp, sharp detailing. And then you said, you know, this isn't quite detail enough. Is that is that where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to sort of represent a later model tiger, so I added all bits and pieces and all sorts of silly stuff on it. Okay, you need to go in a little bit more detail because you've gone in, okay. like, you've actually done something to a bolt action tank that I don't think I've literally seen anyone else do full stop. And uh, for those who don't know you and your reputation in Malifaux, you take entire crews and you scratch belt them, you, you kit bash, and then you sculpt on top of them to make one of a kind, like really themed, crazy model lists that people just look at and go, God damn, that is, you know wait, what is that? How does that, like, which model's which? And once they get it, it it's amazing. So you're applying that same sort of logic to bolt action, um, which is something that bolt action often doesn't get. People spend a lot of time painting, not a lot of time converting. So to get someone who's such a conversion head in bolt action is rare um, and is amazing. So what did you do to this tiger? Just adding bits and pieces doesn't cut it because this is really amazing stuff. Tell us what you did. All right, so it's... um. So I've got like all sorts of King Tiger books floating around the house and stuff. And so this is um, based on a, like, it's crazy. The Germans had like plans on what they're going to do to the tanks, like in July of 1945, like they're still planning for all that, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Yeah. But um, yeah, but um, it was based off, it's sort of like, it's a bit of a, a bastardization um, of sort of a late March tank and uh, the prototype that would never got off paper. Um, so it's, it's added the, the turret I've put in the two little sort of ears on it. They were meant to have like a stereoscopic, stereoscopic range finder built mm -hmm. into it. Um, so that's what that is. Um, I've changed the gun out cause they were looking at upgrading the 88 to a 105, but they opted out of it due to it being a two part ammo. Um, put all new track hangers on it cause they went to single link tracks during the like early 1945. Um, just bits and pieces like that. Okay. You, you clearly know nothing about king tigers yeah no completely unaware of them <laughs> jesus i thought it was a pershing to begin with <laughs> exactly oh my god um okay but you also added a ton of so you bent uh copper rod and you added little hooks to the outside of your turret and not just one or two like a lot of them yeah, so they were they were also added. They were just little um, U's or little you know U bolt sort of things, so they could um, strap camouflage to it a bit better. I feel mm -hmm. they're a bit scared of the Allied air power by then. Yeah. Okay. So, wow, that that's pretty intense. So, what what is it about the King Tiger that gets you so passionate? Because clearly, in order to know any of the things you just listed, you need to really dig in. I mean, that there's some serious research going on there. Um, what fueled that? Was that something you knew before getting into bolt action or is that sort of a happy hobby hole that you sort of fell into when you started reading about stuff? I've got a, uh, a big giant fat box of a 116th uh, King Tiger model kit sitting out in the garage. I'm still a bit scared to touch. Um, so I've always liked um, 
king tigers, just the, I don't know, the shape of them without mm-hmm. sounding a bit creepy, but just <laughs> the shape of them, you know, you read about them, they sounded pretty good, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, just liked them. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at some of the models in my closet and I'm looking at uh, a T28 model. And um, I currently don't have an early war Russian list, uh, or army, I should say, but I do have an early war Finn army. Um, now, I have been doing a lot of reading about my Finns. Um, part of that has to do with Pip, who I'm going to pick on in just a second. Um, <laughs> and his Finn army that he brought to Operation Wolf, and just he kept sending me hobby progress pictures of his army as he hammered through it to get ready for the event. It's funny, he sends me other pictures. <laughs> well, yeah. Those, I'm sure, also get you fired up. Um, but it, it was, uh, it, I mean, they literally just got me so excited to look at my fins again. And so I was looking at my fins. I was like, oh, man, how do I make my fins look different? Um, and I know that sometimes people sort of look at some of the, the old Flames of War books and go, eh, that's not very good or blah, blah, blah. And that's not enough detail because it's it's a larger scale game, as in more models, more tanks, more infantry, that sort of thing. Um, but in one of the books, I looked at the Continuation War list. Um, now, my Finn list has always been Winter War. But looking at Pip's army and looking you know, at the detail he went into it, I was like, you know, I'm going to look at some Continuation War a little bit too. Um, and they have what they called... Um, God, I can't think of the actual title, and I'm certainly not going to butcher the Finn name for it, but they had heavy tank units, um, of which they had, I think, one. Um, And in that heavy tank unit, they had, count them, two T-28s that they um, got off the Soviets in World War II um, that had been abandoned on 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 the battlefield. And because the Finns didn't have the tractors, they actually, whatever they could steal, they had to literally drive off of... The battlefield. So they they <laughs> they thawed out two T twenty eights. They literally thawed them out and drove them back. Um, added a, a little bit of mantlet armor. Um, removed the anti aircraft heavy machine gun that was you know they had on a sort of a U frame on the back of the turret. They actually removed that um, and you know played around with it a bit to get it to run quote unquote a little bit better. Um, and so I'm looking at it going. You know, I have a T28 from Trenchworks in my closet. Pulled that out. And much like Nick's doing, I was like, okay, what can I do to make this match that tank? So thankfully, the Trenchworks kit comes with different barrels to the guns. So I added a different barrel. Um, I'm going to add the mantlet armor, I think, to uh, onto the sides. Um, and, I, of course, the Trenchworks kit thankfully doesn't come with the heavy machine gun you because... You know, if I wanted to add one, if I was playing Soviets, I'd need to. But for Finns, they don't need it because they didn't run it. But that means on the day, if I run this in an event, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna run that machine gun. Now, you know, is that a little extreme? Maybe. But the Finns didn't have it. My model doesn't have it. So I'm thinking, eh, I'm not gonna have it. Um, yeah. Now, Pip, before I start asking you about Continuation War, Nick, <clears throat> you went slightly more extreme when you changed the barrel. On your tiger, yep. it's so big. Yeah. Oh yeah. If only I heard that other like at any other point in my life. <laughs> <laughs> right on. So, yeah. So yeah, put a um a one thirty fifth eighty eight millimeter barrel, cut it down, and just plonked it onto the front of it. Oh god, it's big. It and it, but it's it's not like an unrealistic Warhammer forty thousand esque looking crazy gun. It actually. I mean, that's the gun that could have existed on that tank, right? 
Well, yeah, it was meant to have a 105, so I figured it's close if you, you know, factor in heroic scale and stand on one leg, you know, it'll probably equals out. Right on, man. Oh, love it. Now, I'm going to... I'm going to come back to you about the infantry that you're using to back that up. But I do, while we're kind of talking fins, uh, want to ask Pip about Continuation War. Now, Pip, you came into bolt action cold just, God, a couple months ago. Um, and you're yeah, asking yeah. me about stuff. Um, of all the armies, why fins? Uh, I, uh, I, it's kind of my own personal connection. And when I mean personal connection, I, I don't have any family ancestry that I know that it's Finnish. Um, but uh, I've uh, my favourite ever soccer player uh, for Crystal Palace Football Club is Aki Rihalati, who was a Finnish soccer player. Mm-hmm. Um, I played soccer with quite a few Finn uh, fit lads from Finland, uh, particularly up north in Lapland and Helsinki uh, back in uh, my younger days. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, look, I just – the Finns just uh, – yeah, they just – I, I thought they just sounded cool. Um, I had no idea about the rules or what they did. I thought I, I, I like doing winter theme armies. The Finns seem to be really good for winter, so I thought I'll, I'll give them a try and, and see how I go. Nice. Now, you built your models predominantly out of Warlord models. Is that right? Uh, I think they're all Warlord models, I think. Yeah, I'm almost 100% sure that they were yeah. from memory, but I wanted to see because there's a few other people that make bits and pieces, but Warlord has by far the most complete... Range. So you went for a sort of like a, a fall autumn theme um, or a sort of early winter because you do have some snow, but your guys are also wearing the gray uniforms, not the winter yes. onesies. Um, yeah, the winter. So uh, my theater was due to December 1941, Finland attacks. Mm, nice. So tell us a little bit about your list for Wolf. Um, what was in it and sort of why did you pick it? Okay. Um, well, being a friendly event, uh, t- to be honest, uh, when I when I started uh, painting my fins and looking up a bit more about the rules and all that kind of stuff, I that there is uh, there is a bit of um, there seems to be a predominantly uh, a bit of a opinion about the fins being a bit of an overpowered faction or a bit bit uh, one of the heavier factions in bolt action, mm. um, and uh, I wanted to. Obviously, with a friendly list that uh, Operation Wolf encouraged, I wanted to still take the fins, but um, make it as friendly as possible um, for the event. Right. Now, just to quickly touch on something you said, uh, some people who listen to the show are sometimes new to bolt action. Um, I would say, from having played bolt action a very long time, um, that bolt action tends to lend itself because because of the way it's constructed and how everyone has sort of the same trooper. Everyone has inexperienced, uh, sorry, inexperienced troopers. Everyone has the opportunity to take regular troopers, and everyone has the opportunity to take uh, veteran troopers. Uh, a few special rules and national rules aside, um, everyone tends to have very similar um, forces rules-wise, um, and so it makes. You know, one of the reasons why it's a, you're able to pick it up quickly is because um, the similarity between a lot of units. Um, it's it's when you get into the fine details that's where mastering the game becomes difficult. Um, so because of that, a lot of the nations are very well balanced. Um, that said, a couple of the nations um, have a reputation for having really good national rules. Um, the United States, for example, uh, sometimes the Soviets, uh, definitely Finland is known for having some pretty darn good national rules. Um, and it, it's unfortunate that sometimes people... So there's a new player who was asking some Finn advice on one of the Facebook forums, and a lot of people were telling him, oh, Finns are awful. Um, don't, you know, Finns are cheesy and whatnot. And I know that you had a somewhat similar experience, Pip, but maybe not to that degree. And it is kind of a shame because Finns are such an iconic, cool army. 
Um, it's not that every Finn army you face is going to be a is you know going to kick your teeth in, but you know, Finns may if you you know really go out there to take something hyper aggressive and maybe a historical might be a little tougher to beat than say an Italian army, um, so to say. Um, what were your thoughts on that, Pip? Um, I, to be honest, I was, because uh, uh, myself and another uh, friend of mine, Anthony Perkins, who was uh, building his gorgeous DAC force for the event as well. So good. Um, that one best-themed army, if I remember correctly, is that yes, correct? Yes, that is correct. And yes. he was a runner-up. Um, he was right behind uh, for Best Painted, too. I don't think I told him that. Um, there were three players who were in contention for Best Painted, and Anthony was right behind that. Okay, great, great. Um, yeah. But yeah, like I did have, I did have a bit of an experience like that, and I was, uh, I, I wouldn't say despondent, but um, it was, it was a little bit disheartening to um, be really excited about building a bolt action Finn army, and then you know, um, seeing on the forums and on the social media about how, you know, the, the Finns aren't really an army that people enjoy playing against. Yeah. Um, but saying that, I was trying to for Operation Wolf, and you were a great help in this, Brad, because I know you're a Finn expert, so I wanted to make a list that um, was, you know, was, was okay, but still really enjoyable to play as well for both, for both parties. Um, just to get a little behind baseball, the second that you said I was a Finn expert, I hope you know that I made the Rodney Dangerfield like worried look and pulled my collar to the side. I'm just saying, um, I, don't, I don't know about that, but I've read a lot of books on it. Um, well, I got to say, um, I, I talked to the people who played you at the event um, and nobody said anything about you having a quote-unquote cheesy list. If anything, I think you way underpowered your list. And I, I can hear a few people in the background saying, oh, of course, Finns came second with a new player because they're so good. No, uh, Pip actually turned in an army list, uh, several in fact, and said, well, what do you think about this? And I said, well, that looks, you know, that looks good. Um, a warning, this is a really good unit, this is a really good unit, and this is a really good unit. Um, what do you think of that? And so Pip actually resubbed himself um he didn't have to his list was very much accepted um and i think was you know maybe the first list was a little on the hard side but it was hardly not brutal by any stretch but you really were cognizant of people maybe griping a little bit about fins which is a shame given that this is your first event and it, it really is, it saddens me to think that, you know, people coming into bolt action have this experience, like, where people are crapping on their army to start, you know, before they've even had a chance to play it. Um, but, God, man, you brought a really fun, themey list, um, and nobody, I think, Jeez. could say it's cheesy. Um, and, yeah, I think you did really well with it. So, tell us what's in your army. Okay, so to start with, I had 11 order dice uh, in, in the pool. That's 900 um, points. Uh, 900 points, yeah, mm -hmm. order, 11 order dice. I uh, ran a, a regular second lieutenant mm -hmm. uh, with, a, with a, a, a meat shield, I guess is what you call it. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, two units of seven continuation war rifle squads mm -hmm. with uh, a light machine gun team. And those were regular, um, right? Regular, all regulars, yeah. Yep. Um, a seven-man CC recon squad with uh, tough fighters. Mm-hmm. Uh, a six-man Calcapadio uh, long-distance recon squad. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, what were they armed with? Because there are uh, different options. Uh, I didn't. I didn't uh, arm them with rifles. They they come with um, some machine guns, fancy tank grenades, fanatics, medics, deep strike missions. I think. Jesus. Yeah, they come with everything. But how much are you paying per model, Pip? Um, that's 138 points. Upper model, I think it's like 20, 
25 or 26 points a model, something like that. Yeah. So Nick, when you hear those rules as a new player, you go, <laughs> they do what? Um, but uh, like the Brandenburgers and the German list and the, uh, I guess the assault engineers in the uh, Soviet list, if you tool them up and they come fully tooled, um, you can't they upgrade cost. them. They cost through the nose. Um, yeah. So anyway, but they're the, I think they were the one unit that if anyone was going to look at them, you'd go, oh, that's a hard li- that's a hard unit choice. Yes, but the rest of your list was fine. So whatever. Um, Nick, the thing that people tend to eye roll about that particular unit um, is that they can come in when they outflank. They can come in not only from the sides. They're the only unit in the game that can come in behind your opponent. So like Space Wolf Scouts. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So they're the surprise. (laughs) You just got (laughs) done from behind. Um, And and so people often forget that rule. And so when playing Finns and they're like, wait, your unit's coming in where? Because they're the only unit that does that, new players in particular are often very (laughs) surprised. Anyway, what else did you have? Uh, A regular flamethrower team, uh, a regular sniper squad, uh, a regular light mortar team. Uh, a light anti-tank gun, uh, a BA-10 uh, with the uh, turret-mounted light anti-tank gun and the mm-hmm. coaxial LMG and forward-facing LMG, yep. which is a regular, and a T-26 uh, B or E uh, tankette. Right. So I know that some people, um, one of the other big hard units in the fin list was a BT-42, um, which is a medium howitzer turret tank, which isn't necessarily that hard anymore in version 2, um, but in version one, kind of had the stink of cheese on it. Um, but you even had one of those painted, and you're like, "No, nah, I'm going to take a T twenty six, which is just yeah. a, a light tank with a turret mount, um, light AT gun, and a coax MMG." Yep. Yeah, which I run in my Chinese, and I love to death. But people tell me all the time is inefficient. So you go, "Well, efficiency aside, it's what they used, and it's fun." So eh. It look and it looks cool. Like it, it looked cool. I liked it because it looked cool. Absolutely. It's a cool component to any tabletop game. Yeah, absolutely. It's fun. Go for it. Yeah, rule of cool, man. If it's fun and you enjoy it, play with it. Um, Now, I, I, as an experienced player um, who, as I, who's played fins, I, I can't see that list as causing anyone any problems. I mean, you had one tough fighter squad. You had um, one CC squad that was the tough fighter squad. You had the one squad coming in from behind. You had a couple of vehicles that have light AT guns. Hardly a weapon that people tend to, you know. If anything, they say aren't, isn't powerful enough. Um, and it was just, I mean, okay, you had a flamethrower team, which isn't what flamethrowers were in version one, and you had the Finn Sniper. So you had maybe two units, this Finn Sniper and the outflanky squad um, that could possibly cause people strife. Did anyone give you grief during the event? Not a single person. In yeah. fact, uh, I had uh, some of the most enjoyable games I've ever played, I think. Um, I think I was playing, was it game two, I think, against uh, Ben? He was playing the, was it the SS Germans? I yep. think it was. We played on the jungle table. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we had a great game. We were just making, you know, little German Hans voices. And, you know, it was it was hilarious. Like, it was, it was a great day. Um, it, was, it was a fantastic event. And, yeah, no one said anything about my list, so. Cool. Well, that's what I was, I, I just wanted to double check that because, uh, I know that uh, I've seen some definite fin hate. And look, I'll admit, I'm sure that I have contributed to that culture um, <laughs> by some of the things I've said on this podcast in the past. Because I don't think that fins in particular are um, necessarily, uh, they're definitely not a bad army. Uh, in fact, I may take it upon myself as a challenge to, uh, to be inspired by yourself and play fins. Because I have a fin army. Uh, 
never never play it. Um, I've played it in a few friendly games, but it sits in a case, unloved and unfinished. Um, and it's one of those huh, unfinished. Um, but I think uh, I think it. Just looking at you on the table, it's like God. That I would love to do that. Um, and just to see you have hammered out a beautiful army in such a short amount of time, uh, oh, it, it was it really was, good. It was man. fun to paint. Oh God, yeah. So Pip, now you've played, and you played at a nine hundred point event. Now there are other events coming up mm-hmm. that are going to be probably a thousand points or twelve fifty. Now that you've played uh, three, you know, games at, at the sharp pointy end, um, so to speak, is there anything that you would change with your list um, now that you've come at bolt action with some more experience? Uh, I, I look, I would, I'd also, I, I would always be, you know, um, wary of, um, you know playing stuff that's fun for everyone but i would like to try um you know the bt42 and mm-hmm. um you know try some different theaters so you know the war the war in lapland so some late uh, late war fins with some panzer shreks and mm-hmm. um all that kind of jazz and give it a crack and see how it runs on the table well especially now that you have a panzer track so i know that you got yes i model. do thank you for that oh, pff, oh and whatever. the nimrod too and the nimrod let's not forget the nimrod yeah the finrod now uh finrod. for those who are like but the nimrod's in the hungarian list well, uh, the Finns bought seven Nimrods, I believe, uh, from the Hungarians, and they, sh- they even had their own special turret. Um, and I know we talked about this way back when, years ago, when we reviewed the Finn list, um, and it, it is in the same book. It's in the Italian book. Um, you get both the Finn rules and the Hungarian rules, um, and it even mentions, I believe, that they sold them to the Finns, which is how we know, um, without having to go through the deep historical dive, and Alessio even messaged once, um, put it on Facebook. I have a screenshot of it somewhere on my one of my old phones. And it said, I will be adding the Nimrod to the Finn list in my next FAQ. Um, unfortunately, the next FAQ, I think, came 12 months later. Um, it was right towards the end of that particular run of bolt action. And um, I, I think that got forgotten. Um, but Alessio did say it should be in that list, so... Hopefully, TOs in the future, um, possibly me, will say, sure, bring it in, because it is a cool anti-aircraft tank that... um, It's pretty awesome. Yeah. And I can't imagine that people are going to gripe about an open-topped autocannon tank in a fin list, Um, you know, compared to some of the other things you could take. That is hardly going to, you know, kick anyone's face in. So, (laughs) yeah, anyway. Right on. Um, So, from from a game point... What what mm-hmm. what are your takeaways from Bolt Action? You've played you play a lot of Saga, you play a lot of Malifaux, you've played a lot of Warhammer Forty Thousand, Blood Bowl, um, oh God, uh, Mordheim. Um, so many systems. Yeah, so many. I mean, I can keep listing the games that I know that you've talked about on different podcasts. Um, what what do you think uh, coming into this game with such a wealth of experience? Uh I think overall the system is incredibly tight. Um, it's it, I love the penny mechanic. I think that's a really good. Uh, it's 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 makes bolt action bolt action in my opinion. The, the penny mechanic. Um, it's uh, it's uh, it allows you to you know put pressure on the enemy without having to wipe them out, and it's also good for shutting down units as well. Um, saying that, there was a couple of instances in a couple of my games where I think it was either myself. I know what happened in the game against Dees and I. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Anthony Perkins. Uh, that I think I drew seven order dice in a row out of the bag. Yep. Um, which allowed me to, you know, 
almost get a full turn of shooting and put multiple pin markers on different units. And mm -hmm. um, obviously the counter argument to that is it's like, oh, well, you know, D's would have gotten another seven dice out of the bag in a row as well. Um, yeah. I found that by the time that happened, um, he had a, a one or two pin markers in each unit and he it seemed to, he, his dice weren't great. So he was failing a lot of order checks. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I was actually very curious about what uh, what the belt actions community opinion is about that. Um, is has that ever come up in any kind of discussion, or is it is have there been discussions about maybe capping the amount of water dice you could pull out in a row out of a bag, or is it just something that just happens in the game? So one of the sayings that people tend to have with bolt action is bolt action happens um air quotes around that and it it does um oftentimes in bolt action you'll see you know an inexperienced squad with five pins for example pass its test and assault someone even though they probably yeah. shouldn't have done that or a veteran squad with one pin you know not move for three turns in the game and you know the owner will want to throw their dice somewhere or their models um or you'll get a, <laughs> a string of order dice out of the bag um, and because you're pulling the dice out of the bag, um, one of the things I love about bolt action is it's not you go, I go. You have Correct. to be prepared for, you know, A, you're playing the entire time. You're not sitting back for 20 minutes waiting for your you know, opponent to kick your, you know, models off the table. You know, the old Warhammer saying, take it off. You know, they're not taking everything off in a row and then you have to sit there and watch that and then they have to sit and watch you do it. It's it's that constant constant interaction, and so it becomes glaring, as you say, when um, all of a sudden you get a run of dice. Um, but that's part of the law of averages that sort of goes into the game. Sure, it's a little uh, I don't know um, unrealistic, maybe or unfair at times. But the more you play bolt action, the more you know that occasionally that just happens. Um, and not even that often. I mean, the law of probability just says that that's not likely to occur. Um, but it, it's one of those things that makes for memorable bolt action experiences. It just so happens that you had that early on. Um, I, I don't think I had one of those games uh, for quite a while when I started playing. And so the first time it happened to me and I was on the receiving end of my opponent getting, uh, I think it was Dave of War pulling out something like, as you say, like six dice in a row. Um, and I was like, yeah. oh, my God, that's all. But then, uh, you know, play the next game and you're like, oh, OK, well, you know, that doesn't happen all the time. It just happens sometimes. Um, but when you play in dice games, you know, probability happens. Um, and so bolt action. Yeah, that, that sort of thing happens occasionally. Um, but I think that's part of it's sort of a necessary evil to have a game cool. that yep. is so involved. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It just. Um, I just. I felt. I felt a bit guilty just pulling out fin dice out of the out of the order bag, and yeah. you know because um, poor D's was failing his order checks, he kind of almost missed out on a, on a complete turn. So, yeah. um, it I, it's really unfortunate that, that that happened. But like you said, it, it must be just a necessary. Evil. I, it was just a thought I had over the course of the, of the day. There was there was nothing else I could fault really, to be honest. But mm. um, apart from that one instance, to yeah. So I, I was just interested on your thoughts about that. About that to be to be honest. Yeah, I mean. An element of uh, bolt actions, there's this uh, Australian saying, swings and roundabouts. And it's like, if it goes one way, then it goes the other. Um, so luck often, uh, I know that in certain games of bolt action, I've started out by smashing my opponent or likewise getting smashed by my opponent. And then by the end of the game, you know, that, that momentum, so to speak, has shifted the other way. Um, I, I've found in all my years of playing the game that um, it's rare that the momentum stays consistently with one player for the entire game. 
Um, and, you know, sometimes, you know, if I've had a really good first couple of terms, I'll even catch myself getting complacent. And then uh, I know I play Dave Monroe quite a lot. And when I play mm-hmm. Mr. Monroe, um, you know, in the first couple of turns, sometimes when we've played, especially, you know, Bolt Action or Cold 47, you know, I'll have some really good initial turns. And then I have to catch myself because Dave will come swinging way back and almost wipe me back off yeah. the table. I'm like, ah. Um, so it's one of those things that like in the real battlefield, um, there's sort of swells of momentum, so to speak. Um, and I feel like mm-hmm. bolt action reflects that well, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. The, look, look, it's the red and black joker action happening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and thank you very much for bringing that up. Um, so can you explain that Nick? Oh, well, yeah. In Malifaux for anyone that's played it, you've got two really good, well, a good card and a bad card in the deck. You've got the black joker, which sort of really knackers you in most situations and the red joker, which works really well. And uh, in the Malifaux community, there's been a lot of um, griping and salt and bleating about removing the Jokers. But it seems in Melbourne or Australia, it's, it, it adds that chance element that you can't quite get ready for and you need to just learn to deal with. Exactly. And it, it kind of what makes those crazy, memorable uh, moments when you're like, and then I pulled that card and it changed everything. And, exactly. um, and in bolt action, it's literally the same thing, except it's dice. And it's one of the things I really like about Malifaux is it's you can't count on it it doesn't have that consistency a hundred percent of the time every time um that you might get in maybe a couple of other games where you can literally table an opponent in a couple of turns regularly i don't enjoy those games um i don't think they're fun to play uh either to be to do it to someone or have it done to you uh and so that's one of the reasons why games like malifaux and bolt action appeal to me so much um, Definitely. Nick, have you played? I know you've been spending a lot of time on hobby, and I'm going to start talking to you about your infantry and your terrain in a minute. But um, have you played much bolt action so far? <laughs> Not a game. Okay. <laughs> cool. I, I thought as much, but then I was going, oh, I don't want to safely say this. So, um, clearly, I mean, okay. So, we've talked about how much effort and time you've already poured into one tank. Um, you've also got a, a fairly wide selection of um, uh, infantry models to go with that. Um, Why don't you tell us about those and maybe some of the things you've been adding to them to make them look a little different? Okay. um, Well... Obviously, the, the list is based around the Volksturm, Hitler Youth, and, mm-hmm. you know, Hardest Nails SS squad. Um, the Volksturm is pretty much just um, a couple of packets of the uh, last levy boxes from um, Warlord Games. And mm-hmm. I've just um, tried to give them as many rifles as possible because they, they come with a, a really odd assortment of weapons, which, yeah. while look cool, don't really blend in with the game. The amount of Panzerfaust they're running around with is, like, it would add up to a couple of hundred points by itself. It's madness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I converted up um, sort of... One half of the like one half of the lot of Volkstern to put rifles in their hands and everything, and just to change them up from the other half so you don't have any doubles because you know that's the one downside, I suppose, to metal models, yeah, is doubling up on everything. Um, so just converted them up like guy at the crutch, you know, try to swap out some submachine guns for rifles, mm-hmm. all that sort of jazz brings back memories from like you know 10 15 years ago when a lot of the G dub stuff was metal and mm-hmm. you know bits pinging everywhere and you'd break your clippers and all that fun. Uh, oh yeah so hold on where are you getting your rifles from because i i've seen some of these and you really have gone out of your way to make them look because okay the last levy box in particular has a lot of character you have little girls with you know pigtails with german helmets on carrying around panzerfaust and things like that not your standard quote-unquote uniform world war ii troops um now you took two boxes of those and you wanted to make them look different from one another 
Um, so how are you cutting those out and replacing them? Because I know a lot of players would be interested in how you did that. Okay, well, most of it's like, you know, you get the flat of the clippers and you push it up really hard and hack out as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And then you do get a nice, fresh, you know, knife blade and do the real shifty, scary thing of trying to thinly slice the metal out of there. And, not your and hands. then a lot of it yep. is, um, yeah, not your hands. I did my thumb a few months ago and it was a perler. <sighs> um, and then just a lot of drill bit action. So you get like a big, thick drill bit and sort of drill out furrows in their clothes mm-hmm. and everything so you can refill that with green stuff and slide the gun on in there. Nice, man. That is, uh, you've just mentioned a lot of hobby tools, some of which I do not usually use when I'm putting together bolt action models. It's awesome. (laughs) It's Um, pretty intense. Yeah. So uh, are you using sculpting tools when you are, you know, modeling the green stuff back in once you've dug out these holes to put the guns in or? Oh, definitely. Always. I've got like a a G. Do you recommend one or? I've got a G-Dub green stuff tool that I've had for probably 15 years and mm-hmm. it is like the best thing ever. Like legit. They've changed the, the shape of them nowadays. So when I lose this, I'm just going to be absolutely distraught. So I use that and a variety. I think they call them clay shapers or paint shapers. They're yeah. like little silicon nubs. Yeah, them as well. Nice. Variety of shapes of those. Sweet. Um, so you've actually put cloaks around some of your guys, like camo, cape almost. Um, I know by saying that people are going to get images of maybe um, 40K models, but no, it looks very historical. Like people were actually you know, trying to camouflage themselves in the ruins of Berlin. Um, were you basing those pictures, uh, were you using historical pictures for that? Or was this sort of you being creative? What was that process for you? It was sort of a, a bit of a make do. So I had, so I obviously got the five Hitler Youth from one of the last levy boxes, which are all quite individual. And I had a, a probably five packets of um, some Hitler Youth um, from is it Iron Cross miniatures, which yes. are really good. But there's only three three different sculpts, so obviously you need five. So I did a head swap, but a head swap sort of made the the two boys look very similar. So I put um the camo cloaks on them. I was trying to sort of replicate, you know, the, the what is it, the Zelt barn and stuff the the Grenadiers normally have. Exactly. The, yeah, so trying to replicate that, just to, I imagine they'd throw that on and run out. So it's sort of a, it looks good, but it's kind of to stop it looking blatantly doubly. <laughs> and it does. It does not look doubly at all. So I think you did a very good job in that. Uh, so cool. So what other models are you blending in with this? Because you'd mentioned a Hard as Nails SS squad. Are, are those models in the last levy box, or did you get that from a different box? No, I grabbed, um, is it the Charlemagne yeah. SS? Because I thought they were quite characterful. Um, but I've also got a couple of, um, it's the German here with IR, uh, the infrared sort mm-hmm. of, um, the vampire gear. So I'll be actually using them guys for the assault rifle guys. Cause the King Tiger's got a bunch of IR gear on it as well to sort of really force that last ditch, grab everything out of the box, um, sort of last levy feel. So it's a mix of probably the Charlemagne stuff and those, um, IR equipped, um, veteran here, grenadier sort of things. Right so on. not much conversion there. Now, have you? I know you've spent a lot of time um, on your modeling, clearly. Um, but you've also, I, and clearly, you know what you're talking about as far as research goes. Um, have you spent a lot of time thinking about your list? Because I know that some people call the King Tiger the Devil's Tank, or you know, the Metal Tank, because at Veteran, it's 666 points, which is a yeah. huge yeah. amount of points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was hoping yep. that Pip would have that re- re- uh, reaction to that. It is brutal. Yeah. Um, at regular, it's six hundred five fifty five five fifty five because that was right because I was thinking the IS three is the most expensive tank in the game and it's six hundred regular. Um, 
the take that Russians. Yeah, oh, I have one painted in my case, and I keep thinking if I need a late war Russian army, I need to paint like three models, uh, infantry models, to go with my <laughs> tank, and I'm set. Um, but you have that sort of quote unquote problem with your list. You have this tank is eating up 600 points in your army if you're taking it regular. Um, how are you bulking out the rest of your list? Um, because well, I mean, you're sneaky. going fluff big time. Yeah, it went fluff big time. But another joy of the last levy uh, theater selector is low fuel tanks. That's so right. So you save ten percent. So the King Tiger regular with um, the what is it? The, the Pintle mount medium machine gun mm-hmm. um, is five fifteen. So it's only marginally over halfway. So it's significantly better than six six six. Yeah. So what are you putting so, in the um, rest of your list? Do you clearly have a couple, or you have at least one squad of Hitler Youth? You have an SS yeah, so squad. Got, so what are you putting in there? So I've got two big blobs of Volksturm, mm-hmm. and I just know on that green roll I'm not going to get anything good. So there'll be <laughs> yes. two, two Volksturm squads. Um, they've each got two Panzerfaust just because why not? Mm-hmm. Um, at the Hitler Youth squad with two Panzerfaust. Um, you've also got the, the SS squad, a couple of Panzerfaust. Um, the assault rifles, light machine gun, because they're German. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, a second lieutenant regular with a bro running around with him, and probably the coolest named artillery piece, the Howling Cow. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? And that's that's the list. <laughs> now the Howling Cow is for those wondering. Uh, I know on another podcast someone asked about this recently, and they were like, "Wait, what's that?" It it's it's a um, Okay, uh, Nebelwerfer. Can't believe I blanked on that for a second. But it's a one single... It isn't the sort of the iconic Nebelwerfer with the sort of hexagonal shape, the six tubes. It's one row of four rockets, and it has two crew. So it's sort of a bargain basement Nebelwerfer because you only get two guys crewing it, which means... uh, Wait, it is two or three? It's two, right? Two, yeah. Yeah, so if you lose a guy... You're going to be, or, you know, it's very easy to wipe the crew out of that particular model. Um, but it is also, like everything else in your list, very themey. Um, I like, I know that some people, you know, roll their eyes with late war German armies going, oh, everyone's got Panzerfaust. But a lot of your stuff's inexperienced, A. B, oh, yeah. <laughs> you're talking last levy. They were handing, uh, from what I've read, and albeit Fall of Berlin is not my quote-unquote expert tease, um, they were handing out, you know, Panzerfaust, like they were handing out, you know, helmets. They just, everyone had one um, because, uh, you know, that's what they needed. Um, and so I, I like really 80, like it. Sorry, go ahead. Apparently like 80% of tank casualties, like toward the end of the war were Panzerfaust. They went yeah. from tanks for the Russians. It was all the handheld stuff. Yeah, I, it makes me want to convert up a T-34. Again, I don't have an army to match this at the moment, but it makes me want to grab a T-34 model and put bedspring armor on it. Um, you definitely should do that straight oh, up. be awesome. <laughs> because it's one of those little hobby projects, like your tiger, that you look at and you go, well, no one makes this. So for those who don't know what bedspring armor is, they took these frames and they took... Um, like chain link, and they sort of made little chain link panels um, that they then bolted to the sides of the tank, but that were a couple of inches, maybe six inches off the hull, so they stuck out, which made your tank look very strange. But when, because of the shape charge of the Panzerfaust, when it was fired at the tank, um, it would detonate against um, that sort of chain link um, frame, so to speak, and it would lose its... Uh, potency against the actual armored hull of the vehicle. Um, and it just, it they look weird, but man, it's cool. 
There's um actually rules in the to Berlin book that yes. you can add um the bed springs to your T34s as what is it shirt shirts and shirts and shirts and yeah. It's very cool. Well, I don't actually know if I'm saying that right, but that's sort of what bolt actions say. Ooh, bolt action Shirtson players. Sounds good. Yeah, Shirtson <laughs> sounds good. Um, so cool, awesome. So Nick, when you are done with this project, um, which you seem to be cranking through at lightning speed, uh, I would love to play this army, and I'm sure I can find something vaguely historical that we can get together on this. Uh, you may be playing oh, my Americans, but yeah, we'll we'll have a good time with that. Now, what are we going to be playing on? Because here's something else that you've been doing. I have been doing a big uh, Battle of the Lynn board um, sort of thing, like lots of buildings. Um, just, yeah, it's, it's a, uh, I felt some point during this week, I may have bitten off more than I could chew, but now I've started to roll along again. <laughs> okay. Like, oh, <laughs> right on. So, because you, again, you're going, later in this episode, I talk to uh, Matt from Hall of Heroes, and he talks about, and we talk at length about some of the tables um, that will be at this year's Grand Tournament. Uh, next month in Sydney. And a lot of those tables are multiple tiers, as in they're built up using foam so you can dig down into them. Because one of the things you often see with tabletop war games is that people have a nice nice flat board and then they have hills and buildings and streams and trees and things that sit on top of it. But you often lose that 3D element because you're not actually going into the ground, if that makes sense. In World War II, yeah, you definitely do. So how did you get sort of around that? One of the cool features of your board is you sort of dig into the board itself. So talk us through that a little bit. Okay, so um, I did a similar thing for a Malifaux board, which was significantly easier because it's a three by three, but I just sort of followed the process there. Mm. Um, just went down to Bunnings, got those magical uh, MDF sheets that are all the correct size, mm-hmm. and essentially framed them. Um, nice. I put a frame on the bottom of them um, to hopefully stop some of the warping because MDF's uh, a devil like that. Mm. Um, and then what I did is just simply sort of marked off areas that I needed to dig into or have a crater into and, um, fill that with foam. Nice. And then Um, you then carved into it? Correct. Yeah. So, um, on the board, we've got sort of, it's sort of a diagonal sort of main road across the board and there'll be a big block of apartments and everything. Um, on one sort of side, we've got a park. Um, so you can, if you're coming from that edge, you've got to fight, like run through the open sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But there is some zigzag trenches sort of dug into the park. So they're actually probably, uh, I measured it against a the guy. They can sort of, the guy's head will sit just above the lip of the trench. Nice. Very cool. But your tanks will be able to happily run straight over them, which is a bit more cool than, you know, those raised trenches that you run into issues with. Yeah, that's one of those things that people talk about and I've read a lot about um, actually happened in World War II where tanks would just drive over trenches, especially World War I, the, it having a lot of trench warfare, of course, very famous for that. But it's one of those things that you don't actually see on the bolt-action tabletop that often. And I love mm-hmm. the fact that your trenches are dug deep enough that models go in them but are wide enough, so to speak, that you know certain-sized tanks can still do that. Uh, it's very oh, cool. There was, um, I think it was Otto Karius. It was like um, his book, Tigers in the Mud, and they'd say they'd go over like a Russian anti-tank position and they just turn the tank on the spot and it crushes all the dirt into the trench. It sounds like a horrible way to go, but it oh. was a tactic to sort of clear them out of trenches. Yeah, that, wow. that okay. would definitely yeah. do it. It was like crushing out a cigarette, I think they sort of liken it to. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. brutal. <laughs> Pretty dark. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow, the Eastern Front, woohoo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
What a shiny, happy place to hang out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With no mud at all either. No. Ooh. No, not, not, none. None. Right on. Um, and, but you've also built up, um, to add that three-dimensional feel and that line-blocking terrain, you've built up some buildings to go with it. Oh, yeah. Got, um, got in contact with Mike Parker. He's, he's on the bolt action thing. He does battlefield accessories. I'm yeah. sure most people have seen them. Good stuff. Um, I got him to – he designed up some sort of more Bellini sort of ruins instead of these. He's got Stalingrad ruins, which are really good. I've got some of them as well. Mm-hmm. But he designed up more of a, a sort of a hotel-looking front, a bit more you know, nice and German. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, got three of those or three and a half of those across the main street, and the rest of the map's built up of other smashed apartments. So there's going to be a lot of – like horrible street to street fighting, like the tank tanks are going to be heavily restricted on the board. I feel nice. Oh man, yeah. I'm looking forward to playing on this in a big way. Um, Hell yeah! So as soon as you're done, man, let's do this. Um, oh, so definitely. is this going to be a portable board, or is that one of those things that we're going to have to go to your house to play? I feel like having a non-portable board is almost madness. Now the um, the th- it's in three pieces. Got Dow joining it, so it, you know sits relatively level, and all the all the terrain comes off. It'd be madness to have it stuck on there. Yeah. Yeah. I know a few people that have uh, done some of those big hardcore boards, but as, as again, as I said, at the end of the episode, when speaking with Matt, it's one of those things that you need sort of a, um, you either need a warehouse to store it in like GW did in the U S back in the day where you would build these giant wooden frames around the table and you'd stack them that way um, that you could screw the tables in and out of. Otherwise, um, you definitely need a shop to leave them up sort of permanently or you need to be like, you know, Rick Priestley or John Stollard of Warlord and literally have, you know, small gaming houses attached to the back of their actual homes. Um, Yeah. And you just go, wow, that's ridiculous. Because I think um, I think John or maybe Rick, I can't remember which one, has a gaming table that I think is eight by 12 or something like that. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Um, but they have terrain that moves around on that. But that's the actual tabletop. And they're like, yeah, we like to play big games. And you go, yeah, that's yeah. Cool. I feel, though, that size table, you'd need those, you know, like in the war movies, they have those little sticks with the flat bit on the end. They push right. the markers around. You'd almost need that to reach the middle. Or that little frame along the, like that little scaffolding across the top that you could actually walk up over your table and move things around. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> oh, man. Two G12. As a guy who occasionally likes to wear a hockey jersey while playing in events, I get the feeling that I would catch a sleeve on something if I tried to do that. That would uh, that would be the end of a unit of uh, cavalry or a tank somewhere, I'm sure. Um, and, you, and you'd hear the noise and all the people in the room turn around and do that sort of joint intake of breath. Yeah, the wince. Yeah, Ooh. <laughs> yeah don't do that. And I'm almost certain I would have no hope of reaching the center of the table at all. <laughs> Get on my shoulders, buddy. It'd be all good. <laughs> yeah, no worries. <laughs> for, those, uh, for those who are wondering, uh, Pip does have a reputation of being of, uh, of large stature. Um, tall? <laughs> you, could, you could say that, yes. Yeah, I, I might be. No, no yeah. not at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no Hobbit jokes made here. Anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, all right, cool. Gents, um, so clearly you both have some pretty awesome hobby that has been going on around bolt action. Um, have you, I mean, as new players coming in, um, what have you found has been helpful? Clearly, um, Nick's relied a lot on historical texts. Um, and Pip, you've been talking to some folks. Uh, Pip, I'll start with you because uh, we've been chatting with Nick for a minute, and we'll give Nick a minute to think it think of an answer if he hasn't already figured it out um what what's really helped you out if if you're a new player coming in if, if there's someone who's brand new because i get messaged fairly regularly by people who are just getting into the game 
Um, what are some suggestions that I could give? Uh, suggestions. Uh, look, it's uh, just uh, pick an army theme that you're happy with, that you like the look of, that you have some connection to, or um, that you, even if you something as simple as saw in a movie and thought, you know, that's really cool. Mm. Um, uh, Nick touched on it really well. And um, when I was researching my Finnish army, like I actually had no idea about the continuation war whatsoever. I didn't mm. know that part of the Second World War. And getting into something like that is also a great way of also learning history, but also um, helping you out in terms of building your list and, um, and uh, yet uh, choosing what miniatures you want to take and um, asking the right questions, I think, is a big one as well. Um, totally. And, you know, and yeah, don't be afraid to ask as many questions as you know as you need to, um, because you know being a historical miniatures game, you know there is there is a lot as we discussed already. There is a lot of uh, depth inside each individual army, units, um, factions in general. Um, so you know, look, just point people in the right direction. You know, if something looks cool and they want to want to take it, then go for it. You know, um, just give them as much support as they can to, you know, just enjoy the game and enjoy the hobby as a whole. Awesome. Yeah, man. I. Could not have said that better myself. Uh, Nick, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think Pip hit the uh, nail right on the head there. Um, I was trying to drag some of my local boys into it as well. And you just sort of, I've found when you're trying to talk people into it, just go, oh, like, is there anything about World War II you love? Oh, you know, you love X. And then you go, excellent. Well, then you can look into where that was employed and then you can see what was there and then build your list from that sort of thing. Like you can easily theme it. Mm-hmm. I, I've um, been, and also, sorry, I've been talking with um, one of your co-hosts from, uh, your podcast, a, a fine gent named Corey, who I've met a couple times, and we've been talking quite a lot. And he's like, I, you know, I'm Australian. I want to do Australia. I, I'm, you know, I'm keen for this. And mate, he's keen as mustard. He was like, Yep, I'm gonna get the books. He read the books for about 15 minutes and was like, Cool, I've got my army. What do you think? Sent me a list of models, and I was like, Yeah, dude, awesome. Um, here's some Australian players who might be able to help you out. Um, he asked them a few questions, came back, and bought an army. Bam, and he's loving them. Um, has was he talking with you throughout that process nick yeah yeah there's always like little tendrils going out every which way so so that's why we sort of both started the boards he started these jungle board to uh nice. get working on sort of a, a southeast asian sort of pacific sort of feel mm -hmm. um and yeah so just sort of rolling off that nice sorry and i cut uh, you off you were saying yep oh, i've said the community is quite good as well like you find like in a lot of places like 40k is just like a hell pit of toxicity yeah um but like you find like on the bolt actually, especially like the Australian page, you know, you jump on there and people are more than happy to help out. Instead of like, oh, that's crap, don't use it. How about this is a way you can use it, which is significantly right. better. And it's one of those things that sometimes, especially when you get into other game systems, folks go, oh, don't use that, use this. And it becomes an efficiency game where people are like, this unit's yep. better than that unit because it's get better, you know, better bang for your buck points wise. Um, and you can min max your units to get maximum effect and you can use this to smash. Whereas... Oftentimes, what I really like about the bolt action field is some people will be like, look, that may not be the best choice if you're looking this kind of outcome, um, but rule of cool, that's awesome. Or like, how can, you know, if, if someone's doing something, this might help you to play that better. Or here's a tactic you can use to use that unit um, that maybe you don't see on the tabletop tons because people look at it and go, well, that's not efficient. Um, and I really like that about the community is that people support one another in um, helping them to do what is cool, which is why I guess I was a little disappointed when I saw people sort of jumping on that Finn player, um, if that makes sense. I think that but any online community is full of salt and tears. Like you yeah, have an argument with someone online and then you see them in, you know, 
in real life and they are completely lovely or even a little bit more, you know, scared or something yeah. than they were, you know, anonymously, you know, talking crap. Yeah. Well, that actually, um, I'm going to tangent slightly because that reminds me of something that happened recently. Um, so I've recently started doing, if you haven't listened to this, um, please check out. I've recently started being the online host for Warlord Games official podcast. Um, and so I speak with Paul Sawyer every month and we talk about what's coming out from Warlord Games um, through all their game systems. And then I often speak with an author or um, with someone who's an expert on a particular field that ties into one of Warlord's games. In the first episode, we talked about the Market Garden book. In the second episode, we talked Blood Red Skies. Um, and so there's a lot of good stuff coming on. However, uh, after the first episode, there was a gentleman who said, oh, if you keep that host, I'm not going to listen. Um, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, so uh which host are you talking about the american one or the british one um and he was like oh the american one he's grading he's awful and i was like well that's me is there anything i can do to help with that uh and to his credit he came back right away and was like look i'm not trying like now that i read what i wrote i feel really bad um i i didn't actually try to say that you're an awful person like I, I look like a jerk now i'm really sorry and i was like well that's cool is there something i can do and he's like well look your voice um, reminds me of the YouTubers that my kids listen to, and I have to listen to that all day long. And I was like, look, I get that. I teach primary school 100%. I understand. And he was really nice about it. And he's like, look, I'm just going to have to listen to the show now because otherwise I'm going to come off like a massive clown. And I was like, <laughs> he had a sense of humor about it. But he actually, um, and to his credit, and I don't remember the gentleman's name, um, but he got a little seed going in the back of my mind. Um, and uh, another friend of mine in the States, who um, I am often am on his podcast, uh, Christian Blatt, he does the Blattcast. Um, that's B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. Um, it's often a, a Hollywood or entertainment cast. Um, he's an old friend of mine from growing up. And we just happened to both do podcasting. But he's done a lot of video shows through YouTube recently. And um, between the two people, well, between that fine gentleman's comments and Christian and I talking shop, we're always talking about how to improve the quality of our show. Um, uh, this, uh, this podcast will continue in an audio form. But um, in the next... A uh, month or so, you might start seeing some video content. Um, I've heard a few people, new players coming in, saying they would like some good bolt-action battle reports. And so uh, I'm yes. hoping to start uh, spreading cast dice out a little bit online. And, um, you know, instead of just talking about the games, showing the games that we're playing. Um, showing them how we do it down here in the grand old land of Oz. And, um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure it's going to be embarrassing how many things I get wrong when people start <laughs> criticizing. But uh, they're like, I thought you knew how to play this game. Well, I play a lot of games. Anyway, uh, I'm not perfect, but I'm looking forward to it. Anyway, look for that content soon, gang, um, because I'm very excited about it. Anyway, um, gents, um, I'm sorry to say our time, I think, is almost up. Um, is there anything else that you would like to say um, to a Bolt Action audience um, or just to talk Bolt Action in general? I'm sure we can do it again soon. Uh, I just, uh, unfortunately, do need to roll on. Pip, oh, um, anything you wanted to add? Oh, look, thanks for having us on, Brad. Much appreciated. Uh, play play Bolt Action, play as much as you can, and, yeah, have fun with your gaming. doesn't matter what you're playing. Amen. Yeah. Nick? I think Pip said it all. Awesome. Yeah, now Pip's on the money. 
Now, I did mention that you're both on podcasts, but like a bad host, I didn't actually plug your casts. So, Nick, please tell us where they can find you uh, and talk to us a little bit about the content that you provide uh, for the podcasting community. Oh, we've been super slack probably the last almost oh, eight months, I reckon. We've sort of hit a bit of a Malifaux slump in Melbourne, especially in my local group, so we haven't done anything in ages. So you can look up the Fobros, which is F-A-U-X, and then B-R-A-U-X-S. Um, but, yeah, it, it's not alive at the moment, so uh, good luck with that. But that said, you guys have uh, some awesome hobby banter, and uh, there's always uh, a lot of name-calling and fun having on your cast. Oh, and yeah, not family-friendly. Not family-friendly. No. Family <laughs> <laughs> uh, but excellent nonetheless. I do enjoy it. Uh, Pip, how about you? Uh, yeah, so you can find myself and the lovely mouse and uh, Felix and the rest of the Unfocast panel uh, on SoundCloud. So the the it's uh, Unfocast, so U N F A U X C A S T, all one word. Um, we tend to we tend to be a bit about podcasts that kind of focuses on the less competitive side of Malifaux, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we, we discuss uh, the game probably from a, uh, a bit of an ethics standpoint, um, a lot around sportsmanship, um, also taking things that are considered uh, underpowered by uh, various metas. So we, we like to challenge the meta um, in terms of what people take in their crews. Yeah, it's one of the reasons as it's one of the reasons, A, I love your show and B, you guys have great banter as well. Um, we do. Also, not really family friendly, I must add. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but uh, again, one of the things that I love about your show is the fact that you do sort of, you, you push, you challenge the expected norms. You guys talk about um, behavior that people may bring to the tabletop that maybe doesn't help grow a community. You talk about um, how to bring, you know, excellent hobby to the table. You talk about, um, you know, how tournament organizers can run good events. As I said on episode seven of Cast Dice, I had Mouse on, and uh, he and Pete West, who of course runs CanCon, you know, Australia's largest bolt action event, um, we talked through what makes a successful event, how to run a good event, and if you haven't listened to that and you're thinking about running an event or playing an event, I highly recommend you go back and listen to episode seven of this podcast uh, because Mouse is an excellent um, contributor as well. So, yeah, guys, if you haven't checked out these podcasts and you're, you're at all faux curious, um, I highly recommend them both. So, And I do want to say hello to our good buddy Byron, who was going to join us as well this morning um, and unfortunately couldn't. Um, he, of course, is part of the Red Jokers podcast, which is another Malifaux podcast. Um, so one of the cool things about Operation Wolf is we had so many quote-unquote new players come out of the woodwork um, for the bolt action community, which is why we ended up with 24 players, uh, even though a lot of the local regular bolt action players couldn't make the event. Um, but it was awesome to see so many established hobbyists come out to play this game um, who just brought awesome hobby A-game. I know that, um, Pip, you mentioned Ben earlier. Uh, ben Llewellyn was best runner-up for Best Painted, and his SS had the most minuscule um, P-Dot camouflage painted on it. I mean, it was just it next level It was hobby. insane. Yeah. And I think the only reason why maybe, I mean, not to say take away from Muddy or Tristan's armies, who were also in the runner-up, both of those armies were gorgeous. But if you looked at Ben's really closely, like he actually, his models blended into the tabletop. Um, they, were, they were so well camouflaged. And I think that if he actually had contrast between his models and his board, um, I, I, it, was, it was mind-blowing. It was just. We, it was we so played good. on the 
jungle table for that game and obviously my fins are all in there with their white snow and grey uniforms and Ben's were, you know, camouflaged in the jungle. I'm like, oh, I don't know where your stuff is. <laughs> exactly. But it's also, I mean, very historical, of course, winter fins and uh, German, you know, <laughs> SS in P-dot camouflage in uh, the jungles of Asia. So, uh, yeah. And that table is awesome. Tristan did that for... Um, uh, Operation Heavy, his most recent event, and he very graciously brought it along to Operation it, Wolf. Damn, it, it was a good. gorgeous table and a challenge to play on too. I must, I must say. Yeah, I played it on the game after you. Um, oh no, I played it Operation Heavy in the third game. Um, and yeah, who? Uh, of course, we played it so that every little uh, and the table was entirely covered with little uh, kidney shapes of trees, and we played that each and every one of them was dense terrain, and so if you're standing on one side and they're standing on the other side, you can't see each other, and it just made for walls of green, and I felt like the walls were coming in on me at the end, but uh, <laughs> awesome table times. Anyway, guys, um, I'm trying to do the outro, and here I am telling stories. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to le let that be that. And uh, thank you very much for coming on, guys. And uh, we'll definitely have to get some games soon. Pip, you and I have been talking about playing forever. So uh, forever. we're going to have to get that totally going soon. Uh, we may have to play the Lapland War where you take your fins and I bring my Germans, and we get it on. Excellent. I do know a guy with a pretty sweet table he's building too, by the way. Yeah, I'm liking the sound of this. We will have to do that soon. Is that you? Uh, no, that's okay. Mr. Nick Beatty. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, sorry, that table. I thought you were saying... Just fins. Anyway, moving on. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, with that uh, verbal train wreck by me, I will say <laughs> bid you uh, d not good night because we will be right back with Matt Reichart from Hall of Heroes to talk about the Grand Tournament. So please stay with us, and uh, I promise I will try and trip over my tongue less. Anyway, thank you very much, gentlemen, and I look forward to talking Jeez. to you soon. Thanks. Welcome back, and I'm excited to have on our next guest. He's an old friend from Melbourne uh, who has since moved on to other greener pastures, and uh, that said, he does come back quite a bit. Um, I met this fine gentleman 13 some odd years ago, um, back when I was working in retail uh, at Games Workshop when I was getting my teaching degree. I know I've said many times on this cast that I used to work Games Workshop corporate, and I did in the States. But when I moved to Australia, I, uh, I was getting a teaching degree, and I needed a part-time job. And uh, lo and behold, Games Workshop Retail saw me and my credentials and hired me on. And at one of my first big uh, events where, you know, players would come, Games Workshop used to have these great big events, you know, like Games Day type things, except in Melbourne it was a little bit smaller. And it was at one of those events that I met... Uh, this man, um, who at the time, I believe, was one of the heads of retail in Melbourne. Matt, you're going to help me. have to help me out with this. It's my old friend, Matt Reichard. Welcome to Cast Dice. G'day, bro. How are you, mate? Good, brother. So you used to be head, uh, you were, what, head of region? I, I know that the... The job roles between the U.S. and Australia were different, and I never actually figured out the Aussie retail hierarchy, but you were like a big man on campus. 
Yeah, and no, I think at the time when we met, I was probably still a regional manager, which is essentially just an area manager for retail. So I think at that point, I definitely had Victoria um, under my region, and I'm not sure which others, but um, that's certainly that would have been the time we met when I was still um, based out of Melbourne, I think, before I moved to Sydney. So That's right. And just to put it in context, for those who aren't familiar with Australia, Victoria is the second most populous uh, state in Australia. Sydney, of course, is Melbourne, or sorry, it's Australia's largest city. Um, Melbourne is uh, quick catching up on its heels. Um, and of course, Melbourne is the largest city in Victoria, and Sydney is the largest city in New South Wales, the state next door. Which I currently commute between the two, so I know just how big our country is. That's right. Now, you have a house in Melbourne, but your shop is in Sydney. Um, how did that all get to happen? Uh, a few years ago, we had to move back to Melbourne for family reasons, so... Um, what started off as I said, oh, I'll be commuting for about six months, turned into a year and a half. So um, not ideal, but uh, had to be done at the time. So um, we've finally just hired a manager and we're going to announce that uh, that person next week. And then hopefully uh, my travel will reduce. Nice. So at the moment, I'm traveling up weekly currently. Well, I know that's not necessarily ideal for you personally, but uh, for purely selfish reasons, it's lovely because it means I actually get to see you in Melbourne, which is great. I know. I actually went to your tournament a couple of weeks ago. Oh, mate, I'm glad you brought that up. Now, you and I both came from a games workshop background. Clearly, we worked for the company. Um, and you and I both play a ton of different games. Um, but you have had a history with bolt action in the past. I know you've played it in your shops and you've run bolt action events. Uh, but uh, I think this is one of the first big events that you've actually played in. Um, so Operation Wolf, of course, was uh, a play, an event that I held about a month ago in Melbourne. And uh, you contributed some awesome terrain. I think, what, four tables worth? Um, and you and a bunch of mates came out and played. Yep, I've slightly recruited all the old Warhammer guys back into something different. So, yeah, it was we, great uh, to see. It was great to see Mikey and Ben and uh, Ramon. It was just, it was great to see you guys. You showed up, you know, ready for the the event. And it's funny how many bolt action players um, who have been playing bolt action for years but never really played Warhammer before that looked at you guys and were like, oh yeah, I knew guys, and they were like, oh, this is how the game works. And you're like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Turns out I'm a veteran. I know how this works. Yeah, we've got a little bit of experience. Oh, it was weird it. though. It was, very, it was a strange sensation because we didn't. None of us had our Warhammer Forty Thousand armies with us, so that was the first time that all four of us have played at a tournament that wasn't a Warhammer Forty Thousand tournament. Yeah, it was. But as someone who played in Warhammer Forty Thousand events with you guys for so many years, it was really nice just to look up and see those familiar faces and be like, "Oh yeah, this is this is cool." Um, so, what did you think of the Bolt Action event? I mean, all four of you came. I know you guys play games regularly, including Bolt Action. Um, how did Bolt Action uh, reach out and grab you? Did you enjoy it? Um, what were your thoughts? Yeah, no, I really enjoyed myself. I, I, I was frustrated because it was such a new learning experience because, I mean, we've played socially in our bold action for about three or four months mm -hmm. um, and getting in there and, and being out of the comfort zone was a, a strange sensation because normally we know exactly what we're doing. So it was nice to see Ben just slotted straight into it, the old hat of um, competitive play. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was a steep learning experience. But, no, the, the guys were good. The terrain was great. The organisation was excellent. So it was a really good day. Nice. Now, you played Americans. 
Uh, no, Mike, you play the Americans. I had my German DAC. Oh, so. my God. I can't believe I forgot that. Yeah, I made notes of which armies you guys played. And, of course, Ben played his very beautiful SS, and Ramon played, and now I'm blanking. Oh, my God. It has been a long day. What did Ramon play? Ramon, Germans. Germans, of course. So uh, what did you think of the German national rules? Did you feel like uh, – I mean, how? tell us about your army. What did you think? Yeah, I really liked it. I mean, I think uh, probably the three games prior, I completely forgot the Hitler buzzsaw rule. So that was interesting. Um, I didn't realise until two days before the tournament that I could give an additional order with my first lieutenant. So, um, yeah, preparation, uh, probably important for a tournament, just quietly. But, um, no, look, I'm really happy with the Germans. I'm really, really happy with them. So I think um, I'm leaning toward Australians because I want to try and do something completely different next time. So... Okay. Um, so I think Australians might be the next one, but um, no, it was actually the first time that that army. Um, I painted that army three years ago, maybe four years ago, mm-hmm. and um, never. I haven't played. Well, I had three games with that army prior to turning up to your tournament, so that was the first tournament that army actually got out of a figure case and got used on the tabletop. So it was pretty exciting. Yeah, that is. And that's one of the great things about World War II gaming is you may have an army for three or four or ten. I've spoken to guys who've literally had their armies for a decade and they're like, oh, yeah, uh, I don't know if this is any good on the table because the models are all old and they put it out on the table and boom, bolt action happens and it's awesome. Yeah, no, it's good. Well, we have we have an extensive collection here in the shop that we've been painting uh, for well, since the shop's inception about eight years ago. And um yeah, most of them have sat in gla- on glass for a very long time. So being able to get them out and play games um, is really good. Nice. The models deserve to be used, not collect dust. Absolutely. Um, now, one of the things that I've noticed having been in your shop, and I know your shop's moved, but I know this part of the shop hasn't, or it moved, but it hasn't changed. Um, your shop, of course, Hall of Heroes, has beautiful terrain. Um, I know that when I came to play at the grand tournament that you guys ran four, three, four years ago, um, five five years, got him old. Um, When you guys ran your first uh, grand tournament five years ago, uh, I was blown away at the quality of your shot. Just the terrain. One of the tables in particular really jumped out at me. Actually, two of them. Um, One was a ruined city that had sort of a a series of bridges going over an aqueduct. Um, There was another city that um, was multi-tiered with buildings um, that, you know, just ringed the outside and then had cobblestone streets in the middle and stairs going up and down. Again, multiple levels. Uh, Because oftentimes on tabletops, you see, you know, a flat table with, you know, interchangeable moving terrain on top. But you guys had built multiple-tier terrain um, that, you know, you actually have to move up and down and all around and had amazing line of sight blocking um, situations that you normally don't see on the tabletop. Um, was that intentionally built for bolt action or was that sort of one of those things that just it was a happy accident? Yeah, one of, one of them was. One of them's actually based on the Saving Private Ryan movie, so the final battle in the mm-hmm. town of Rommel. Um so that table's actually purpose-built for that because actually um, there's a replica, so to speak, of that, that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've actually 
We've actually created some terrain that goes over the river because one of the drawbacks is having a, a big whopping, you know, five-foot river running through the middle of the table was a little frustrating, particularly because it's so wide. So um, for the tournament, we actually cover that up now. Um, but the buildings and everything else remain the same. And the, the other cobblestone one you talk about, that one's still here as well. And that one's... Um, we actually originally built it... Um, well, it was before the days of Frostgrave, so I can't recall, but I, I think it was for... Um, Either Malifaux or oh, yeah. Mordheim, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, I can't. So, yeah, that one, that it seemed like a bright idea at the time to get a whole lot of industrial insulation foam and carve all of the um, cobblestones in by hand. Mm -hmm. um, so, in, in hindsight, not my best decision, but um, it, it, it's a lovely table. It's actually undergoing repairs. Both those tables have been in storage and have sustained a lot of damage. So, they're both going to be repaired in time for our grand tournament. I was, uh, I will, we'll get to your grand tournament in just a second because I definitely want to talk about that. But I was literally talking about your tables when I was in the States uh, last week with a friend uh, and I was describing how the tables were set up and I was drawing little sketches on paper. And uh, it is just, they're just such one-off awesome terrain pieces. I understand what you're saying about effort going in. I mean, I was hammering out for weeks before Operation Wolf, building some buildings and some more walls uh, and making sure that I had... Uh, enough tape, uh, you know, terrain to cover the tabletops for such a big event. But I, I, just to put that much effort in to what you're saying about hand carving all of those cobblestones in, and and you know, ca carving the foam to be multiple levels, and then building the stairways and you know the buildings into those tables. I can't even imagine the amount of effort that must have took. Um, so you did a lot of that. Yeah, myself and customers and some of my staff. So, geez, that's going back a while. That was, um, well, to be honest, the table, the Ramel table, um, was built by a former customer um, out at um, Penrith, first name Glenn. Oh, I've gone blank on the surname. He's not going to forgive me. But, um, yeah, so many years ago. And the problem when you build tables like that is obviously storage. So it got to a point where, you know, another friend of mine, Brett, had inherited it. And, um you know, storage was becoming an issue and, and I didn't want to see it damaged. Um, so we took it um, and we actually bought it from him in the end. Um, so that's now one of our store resources. Um, and the cobblestone table, yeah, that's going back, you know, five or six years too. But that's an iconic table here in the shop. So yeah. it's um, it's it's actually enjoyable to sit there and repair them because it's like a, it's a bit of a you know, ancient relic for us now. And uh, I want to try and make sure it returns to its former glory. Well, that's the thing. I mean, tables like that are treasure. Like they are just so. In the wargaming world, you you look at you know they're just so different. And when you look at them, you say, "Wow, that's amazing." And I know from my days in in Games Workshop, um, I had friends in promotions, and they would make some pretty spectacular tables. But as you say, you had to build you know to store the darn things. You had to you know put giant wooden frames and screw the bases in just so you could stack them in the back of the warehouse, mm -hmm. and then. It was storing them is such a pain in the neck, but and they would you know people in promotions would always complain about like how much work it was to get them out. But once you actually got them out and you watched people at like grand tournaments or at games day events, and the tables would go down and people would just come by with these giant you know Coke bottle eyes, just looking at you know googly eyes, staring at them, going, "Wow!" And it it really does make. I mean, having beautiful models on a beautiful table just is such an advertisement for the game and helps to really draw people in to see what's going on. But having tables like that is just, it's just that whole other level. 
And the fact that you have tables like that in your shop, I think just speaks volumes of how much you take that seriously. Um, I mean, you clearly you've helped run a lot of events over the years and you would know what I'm talking about. Um, mm. Are there any other tables like that that you're looking forward to sharing with this year's grand tournament or are you looking for also, so uh, talk to us about the grand tournament, I guess I, I, I it's a big deal and I want to talk about that. So what, what, how many players are you thinking? Um, what kind of event talk to us about the grand tournament? Yeah, look, we've got a capacity of, um, Oh, look, 50, I generously say, but um, yeah, about 25 tables we can fit in the shop comfortably without people having to, you know, bump into one another. So, mm. um, you know, anything up to 50, um, you know, we really are putting a lot of effort into the train this year. Um, I need this to be successful. Otherwise, my business partners will be very grumpy at me because I have spent a substantial amount of money in the last 12 months on terrain. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Particularly foreground, we've got two or three really nice uh, foreground tables that we're going to roll out for this year's GT. So there's going to be two desert-themed ones and um, uh, at least I'm hoping for two European ones. So that cobblestone table you talked about, that's going to be entirely covered in foreground terrain. Beautiful. Um, um, I think that runs at a cost of about $1,500. Oh. So. Um, you know, foreground's lovely, but um, there's a few dollars invested in the foreground, let me tell you. Yeah. So, um, and then um, we've obviously got, look, we can, we can comfortably deck out um, 20 tables, and then I think, you know, we, we may need a call on the community from there. So, But the idea with the GT is we want to run something that's, um, you know, low maintenance for the, for the gamer. So the gamer basically just has to turn up to shop with, with their army and everything else is provided and organised for them. So... Uh, fingers crossed we'll, we'll have enough terrain that when people walk in, the train will be laid out for them and they don't have to run around and set anything up like you do at a normal tournament. I mean, that's the advantage when you run it in a specialised shop like ours, um, you know, where it's all sort of there and set up for you. So yeah. um, we, ran, we ran a GT, as I say, coming up with five years ago now, um, and at the time, I think it was Alex Williams, one of our regulars, who organised it. Mm -hmm. And it was quite funny. He wasn't a dedicated bolt action player at the time. Bolt action had been out for a year or so, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, he came to me. He said, I want to run this grand tournament. And I said, but you hardly play. And he said, that won't stop me. And I went, okay. And to his credit at the time, I think it was um, – I think it was actually the biggest tournament in the country at the time. It was only 24 players. Um, the events have grown since then. Mm. But, um, you know, it was actually photos of that event that drove me to want to run this event again because I was going through and just doing a clean-up, as you do, of all the folders mm -hmm. um, of our computers, and I came across a bunch of photos from that event. And I just went, it was really sad that we let that sort of trail off and, and disappear from our store. So um, we've actually seen a resurgence in bold action recently where we've now got a, a good gaming group that meets every Saturday and plays. Um, you know, it's ticking over off the shelf again. Um, you know, it, it's a popular game in the shop once more. And when I came across these photos, I just went, no, nah, the time's right. Time is right. We, we do some big tournaments for some of the other game systems and I would say that Bolt Action would comfortably slot into the top five um, biggest turnover, you know, miniature games in the country. And it just seems silly that we don't run one for uh, Bolt Action. So we're going to rectify that. 
That's awesome. Yeah, it's glad. I'm glad to hear that it's doing so well for you guys in the shop. Um, as you said, I flew up for the last event. Um, I so the five years ago when you guys ran the first grand tournament, and I have to agree, Alex did a wonderful job running that event. Um, as a player, I just had a wonderful time. It was a two day event, which at the time and still to this day is still fairly rare by Australian standards. We tend to run a lot of one day events. Um, sometimes, you know, Bolt Actions does sometimes, you know, bring in some older players. And um, when I say older, I mean maybe 30s, 40s, people who have young families. And so getting two days away can be sometimes problematic, um, which is why, unfortunately, I can't make it up this year. But, mate, I have uh, I have such fond memories of you guys running that event. Um, it, again, it was very clear. It was very fun. Um, there was no ambigu- you know, amb- ambiguity with the missions or... You know, it ran on time. Uh, the food was great. Um, it was just your clean. Your shop is clean and neat and tidy. It just had an awesome time. So, guys, if you happen to be around Sydney or you're willing to make that trip, uh, it's worth it. Um, now, you told me that you've moved recently, Matt, but you're still near yep. a train station because when I went last time. I know sometimes when you go to events, you travel interstate uh, in Australia, you think, oh, can I get there? Like, that's a big problem. One of the great things about Hall of Heroes is you can fly into uh, Sydney's airport and then you can get a train right to your shop and there are hotels and restaurants all around. Um, I assume that's still the case. It is indeed. We actually moved closer to the train station. so Even better. Yeah, we literally, we just moved down the road and the train station is about four minutes walk away. So not not far at all. And plenty of restaurant options if people want to eat or make merry afterward? Plenty of options. So we're now, we used to sit just outside the sort of Campbelltown CBD. We're right in the middle of it now. So literally um, food options, are, you know, matter of, you know, five, ten minute walk to any option you want. So. Yeah, we went to a very good Chinese restaurant the last time I was there and then went for a tasty beverage. Uh, but yes, oh, uh, yeah, again, wonderful area, wonderful shop. Um, now, I did hear, though, that, uh-oh, while you've moved, the kitchen's temporarily on hold. So if you're expecting the famous schnitzel, you may have to go else for somewhere else. Alas, that is the case. We don't In the current premises, we don't have a kitchen. But you do have plenty of snacks and drinks and all that. So if you're looking for something, they definitely got your back. We can help your diabetes one chocolate bar at a time. My man. Um, Now, I I think I would be remiss if we actually didn't say. So this year's grand tournament is the 19th and 20th of May. Um, It is a five-game event. And so that's three games on the Saturday, two games on the Sunday. Again, that's like last time. And and I knew that was really good because I was able to get out and get to the airport early enough to get a flight back to where I came from. So I flew in Friday night, flew out Sunday late afternoon, and was still home in time to get a good night's sleep and get to work on Monday, which is awesome. Um, Was that intentional, I'm assuming? Yeah, we get a lot of support from um, for most of our events from Canberra, particularly. So, um, um, yeah, the the, ob- the ability to get people back to the airport and back to Canberra at a sensible hour um, is why we picked the five games. So, we nice. thought if we're calling it the grand tournament, it's important to have it over two days and, and have a, a, as many games as we can fit in. We used to do six uh, once upon a time, but yeah, transport wise, that just becomes too difficult on the Saturday, on the Sunday. Sorry. So. At this stage, I think we try to get everybody out by about 4, 4.30 at the latest on uh, Sunday. 
Nice. Now I know I'm I'm hearing people calling through the internet. Well, okay, what what is this tournament like? Um, is it going to be more theme? Is it going to be more competition? If it's a grand tournament, there are definitely assumptions that some people will make about the way that people played it. Uh, so if I understand correctly, you spoke to Peter West, uh, the of course, the excellent TO of the world or Australia's largest um, bolt action event, uh, that being CanCon, of course. And you and he talked about how to run this event. Would you like to tell us uh, a little bit about your player pack this year? Uh, essentially, it's uh, shamelessly plagiarized. Um, uh, essentially, it is um, the very close to the same pack that Pete ran at CanCon. So the experience that people would have at, say, CanCon in terms of the pack and its influence on the play style um, will be very similar. So um, people will... Um, Play competitively, I guess, um, being a tournament. Um, but um, we've put all the same restrictions in that they had at uh, CanCon. So um, I think um, you know most people should play in the right spirit. I, I'm, I'm anticipating getting a similar result of, of player turnout and expectation that you would have at say one of um, Pete's events at say CanCon or um, uh, WinterCon, for example. Well, I mean, it's also the same basic player base. I mean, Sydney and Canberra are relatively close to one another. Right. And so if we see the big crowds for WinterCon and for CanCon, um, a lot of those players come from Canberra and Sydney. Sydney, of course, being the largest city. So sure, a lot of Melbourne guys go up for WinterCon and for CanCon. But, um, and, you know, guys come down from uh, Queensland. But really... It's the same player base, and that player base is known for having just some awesome hobbies, some great the uh, themed historical lists, uh, and just bringing a really nice quality of play to the tabletop. So you know that if you're going, you're not gonna, you know, you're gonna get some good hard games, um, but you're not necessarily gonna have to face something that's gonna kick you in the face. Um, it's gonna be good. And I, from past experience at the last GT, albeit it was a long time ago, uh, that was the experience I had then as well. Um, cool. Yeah, I was going to say we've worked really hard. We we I think bolt action waned for a few years in our shop, um, particularly due to some very competitive play styles, and we've worked really hard um, to get guys that can play well, but you know play within the spirit and you know and respectful of the fact that the person standing opposite them on the table has given away their family time to come and play some games and have a good time and uh, not just get sort of smashed faced by somebody who um, enjoys power gaming. So I, look, my anticipation is it'll be a, a good mix of guys that, and um, hopefully some ladies who um, like to play to have some fun. Nice. Now, I understand that you're running the shop and there's going to be a lot going on. Uh, are you planning to play this year or are you just going to play the host with the most? No, I'm, I'm planning to play this year. So nice. I am. Um, I stirred up uh, some of my Melbourne friends to come up. So hopefully Ben and Mike and possibly Ramon will, will get up for the event. And um, if I said, look, if they're going to come, I'll have to play as well. So I was hoping to have my Australians done by the GT, but it's looking like um, the DAC will get another role out, I'd suggest. I think I'll probably play almost the same list I took to um, Operation Wolf, just with a couple of changes. I might put a couple of smaller um, units in just to break it up a bit because I went with really big units mm -hmm. and I found they lacked a bit of flexibility for me. So. Well, that and um, you actually get an extra 100 points to play around with because at my event, it was a 900-point event. You're, of course, talking about 1,000 points. Uh, so I guess 
that would be that was my next question. So what are you thinking about adding? Just adding more smaller squads? Yeah, I'm thinking two squads, two small squads. I got um, I got pinned out of one game really badly, and I was just finding it. I just found the big units. I didn't have um, enough order dice, and if I lost one unit, it was really it sort of tactically started to limit me very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want a couple of small roving units that I can put in. So I played a game recently, a thousand points. It was exactly the same list with the addition of um, I think it was one small veteran unit and one small regular unit. Uh, I think about five, six models each. Mm-hmm. Gave me a couple more LMGs. I do like my MLMGs. So um, I was pretty happy with the outcome. Nice. Well, that's the thing. You're also playing, um, you know, historically minded uh, mid-war uh, towards the early side list. So, of course, if you're playing Germans, it means you're not getting a lot of the quote-unquote toys. Like, you don't have the Panzerfaust, you don't have the assault rifles, you don't have a lot of the late-war vehicles that, you know, can sometimes just give you a lot of just fairly good flexibility in the way that you play. So that if you're playing, as you say, prior to those things coming into the the war, then um, if you're playing Germans, look, those LMGs are looking pretty darn good um, because it really does give you that reach out and touch someone that sometimes early war lists lack. Um, yeah, so right on. So what vehicles are you putting in your deck and how did you find them on the tabletop? Yeah, I was running, um, was it just a straight Panzer three? I'm yes. pretty sure it was a straight three I ran. Yeah, look, it was okay. Um, Again, it was such a learning experience for me at the last tournament, so I've learned a little bit um, about the tournament. I, I found them really good um, as a mobile weapons platform for a game for some LMGs. There's a theme going here. Uh, sorry, um, I think it was um, medium machine guns. Yeah. So, um, you know, they they could lay down almost the most firepower out of anything I had on the table onto an objective, so they were great for protecting objectives. Um yeah, I haven't played Ben's army. He's got a, a nasty big panther in there, so um, mm-hmm. I'll be curious to see how my little tank goes against that. So I've only, I think the one drawback over the army list is it's only got two anti-tank options at the moment. So it's like a pack thirty-eight and uh, the Panzer three. So I'm not sure um, how I'm going to combat that because I think if my if my tank got knocked out against Ben's army, for example, pretty early, I could be in a bit of strife. But um, spend the rest of the game basically running and hiding behind buildings a lot. So yeah, but. Um, well, the yeah. good news is with the Pack 38, it being a medium AT gun, you can definitely put a, a dent in. Uh, you know, it's, you're not likely to destroy the Panther necessarily dice wise, but you can definitely put some pins on it, uh, and that'll definitely help. So, if you, uh, as long as you, you know, strategically place your assets, uh, maybe along the sides of the table, or get yourself some good fire lines, so you might get a side shot, or uh, even, you know, if you can get up, maybe outflank your tank and get behind that panther, you can definitely put some hurt down. But uh, the other thing about some of those big, ugly, nasty tanks is sometimes may not hurt just to duck a little and hide, and uh, they may struggle to find their points. But yeah, mate, I really liked your list, the one that you brought to Operation Wolf, because it, A, it was very historically based, um, but B, you had a lot, you had good options in there tactically to, uh, to get the job done. Um, as you said, you didn't go crazy with the anti-tank options, but for not, at the 900-point level or even at the 1,000-point level, you don't necessarily mm-hmm. need to. Um, big tanks are great and I love them and people who listen to this cast know that I love a big tank but they're expensive and you know you've got enough infantry and as you say enough LMGs enough uh, tools to put the herd on infantry and bolt actions and infantry pays game so uh, I think you definitely have what you need absolutely 
Yeah, it's four hundred something points for a um a Panther, so it's a lot of points to put into one one choice. So Tiger One oh, oh. is so hold on, a Tiger One is three hundred and ninety five for regular. Now is if Ben's running a vet Panther, I think that is about that. I think I think it is a vet. Oh, look, I'm actually sitting here smiling, just thinking of Ben's face. If I can blow that sucker up, so. <laughs> uh, it is the best reward to make your friends miserable by destroying their big, beautiful, freshly painted uh, tank. It'd just be nothing better in the world at that point in time, I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Um, I, I did say it on a recent podcast, but I have to say it again. Um, speaking of people's faces, uh, Ramon was uh, playing a game at operation wolf uh this was his and ramon came fourth or fifth i believe overall um and so got the trophy for best new player um there was another player who got best new player uh, who would have gotten it but he was on the podium and i said that if you were on the podium you couldn't get that trophy um so ramon came you know second new best player anyway he got the trophy so he definitely knows his way around a tabletop and had some really good games um but in his second game, he was halfway through playing and he rolled an order test and rolled a 12. And his expression when uh, his opponent explained that that was a foobar and he was like, what's foobar? And just he's oh. like, wait, what? I roll a die and he rolled. And of course he rolled. So his guys turned around. Of course he's playing Germans because he had Hitler's buzzsaw. Now that I remember this story. Um, but he started shooting his own troops and his expression wasn't necessarily, you know, some players would like get salty or, you know, get grumpy or, you know, but he was just, it was pure joy and surprise. He was like, this is awesome. This game is so good. And he, he just loved it. Um, and just, you know, that, that made just that little, that and a couple other little things that happened at Operation Wolf just, you know, as the TO made the day for me. And it was just looking at it going, yeah, see the joy of wargaming. Like when you get to shoot your own guys by accident, fantastic. Right. Um, and the fact far too much pleasure in his discomfort. Oh <laughs> man, he was laughing and having a good time. You know, as I was oh. saying, if, if he was salty about it, it wouldn't have been nearly as fun, but the fact that he just had a, you know, an honest to God, uh, you know, Santa Claus esque big belly laugh and was like, This is awesome. I love this game. Just, you know, ticked it for me. Anyway, let's uh let's you know, go the, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say the funny thing with that is I think in our group, I don't think we'd had a single foobar in the dozen or so games we'd played prior to that event. Yeah. And um we had three on the day between us. So um it was like we all learned what foobar does pretty quickly. Yeah, it is funny. Uh, I think I went a year without my first foobar properly happening, and then I think I had three in one game, or you know, maybe even just two. But it was like, what the hell again? What? And uh, <laughs> it was just one of those awesome rules that it, you know, you don't necessarily plan for or think of, but when it happens, it just it's just one of those fun little accidents in bolt action that you're like, oh god, it happened again. Why? Um, but yeah, but good time. It won me a game, to be honest, um, because my opponent rolled it. It was great, and it was uh, a tense moment. Um, I'd uh, Basically, there was one objective left in the middle. There were two units that could get to it. I moved my unit onto it. Um, my opponent had a, a much larger, more impressive unit that probably would have wiped my little command squad out, and I had um, two lots of guns trained on it from a tank and a, and a um, fixed sort of um, medium machine gun. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I ended up pulling my order dice out first, so I had to give orders to those those guns. And um, I actually failed. Uh, sorry, in both cases, I failed my leadership test because they both had pins. Mm-hmm. Um, so they both went down. So I had no covering fire on this objective. I had a little two-man unit left on the objective with very little chance of survival. And my opponent, the poor bloke, rolled um, 12 and ran away from the objective, and I won the game. Awesome. So, it was a great moment. It was a highlight of my day. And that is what the kids say. Bolt action happens. Um, oh, love it. Love it. Well, uh, Matt, I think our time is almost up today, sadly. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say about the Grand Tournament? As I said, it's the 19th and 20th of May. Um, guys. I have to mention Warren Peaks or Ian will throw uh, something at his computer screen. So, um, yeah, no, look, we we're, we're looking at this stage. Every, everybody will walk away with something, so we'll have a prize pool that gives everybody um, something on the day. So even if you come dead last, you'll walk away something that will make you happy. Nice. Um, so the, the event's been co-sponsored by War and Peace uh, Games. So as anybody who's ever attended a tournament sponsored by War and Peace will know, um, Ian is very, very generous. So um, we'll match whatever he throws in. Um, and at this stage, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's going to be a... a, a Pretty hefty price pool. So if you make the journey out for the event, um, you will walk away with something that will make you happy, I'm sure. Awesome. And just as I said, this is not your first rodeo. Um, you clearly have a lot of years backing you up with wargaming planning event. Oh, sorry, event planning. Um, I think it's, it's really important if people are sort of on the fence of, eh, is this going to be a good event? It's going to be a great event. Uh, it is really – this is one of those things that um, – it, it falls in like Moab, like CanCon, like WinterCon. Great, well-run events, tons of prize support, awesome terrain, good players. It, 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 I am really bummed out I can't make it for this particular event. But uh, if you're running it next year, it is definitely going to be one of those things that I start having that, that hard conversation with my wife saying, so how about that? Um, because I had such a blast the last time. So guys, if well, you, it, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Michael. No, I was going to say, we've put a lot of effort into our tournaments in the last six months, and it's going to be an annual thing. So regardless of what happens on May 19th to 20th this year, it'll definitely be back on next year. Thank you so much for coming on, Matt. Uh, it is just awesome talking to you again, and thank you so much for bringing four of your tables to Operation Wolf. Um, if those are just the basic tables, I can't imagine the new tables you're bringing to bear for your event, because they were awesome. Uh yeah again appreciate it man thank you very much oh thank you the train will uh the train will definitely meet expectations and hopefully go beyond so I'm, I'm looking forward to it awesome awesome well guys if uh if you would like to give matt feedback um or sorry not get give me feedback about this episode you can find uh of course cast dice through facebook if you type land o misfit toys um, or just type Cast Dice into the Facebook search engine, you will find Lando Misfit Toys, home of the Cast Dice podcast. Um, you can just find my hobby progress on there, or you can uh, you know, send a message and uh, let me know what you think uh, of this particular episode. I apologize if I'm a little, uh, you know, trip over my tongue in this episode. It has been a little bit of time since I've podcasted last, and uh, I'm just feeling a little out of sorts. That said... Um, I highly recommend. I know I've said it three times already. Again, it I, it goes without saying that this is, and yet I'm going to say it anyway. The GT is going to be awesome. 
if you can get there, get there. Um, please do. And uh, if you have any questions at all, it's Hall of Heroes. It's in Campbelltown, New South Wales. Call them up. Find it. Um, Matt, what is your phone number for those who are trying to call within Australia? 024-625-8020. Brilliant. Uh, say it one more time so people back it up, they can check it. 024-625-8020. And you guys have a Facebook page that I assume that people can contact you with if they have any questions? Yes, indeed. We have all the social medias. So, yeah, no, Facebook Facebook message or the other one is send an email to events at thehallofheroes.com.au. And- it's all on our website. Brilliant. And I was going to say, and go to your website because I've always found good info when I've gone there. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Matt. Uh, Until next time, I look forward to uh, hearing all about the GT in the coming, I guess, in the next month. Sounds good. Thanks very much for the chat, Brad. I really appreciate it, mate. Anytime, brother. We will talk soon. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, at the end of a good Cast Dice podcast, I have to say, I hope that your dice run hot, that your beverages run cold, And that no matter what, when you're playing games, you're having a good time. Good night. Another day.